Greetings and salutations, loyal listeners. This is Jacob King, and welcome back to Poppenschlock. I know we've been gone a while, but we are back for a whole slew of new episodes, starting with this one, a deep dive into Joel Cohen's staging of The Tragedy of Macbeth, starring Denzel Washington, now available on Apple TV. Apologies in advance, both myself and my co-host were not at 100% while taping this episode, and so we sound more than a little under the weather, but I promise that the discussion holds its own. So please sit back and enjoy our first episode of 2022, The Tragedy of Macbeth. All right, let's try this one more goddamn time. Welcome back to the Pop and Slot Podcast Reloaded. All right, welcome to 2022. It's taken longer than we expected. We took uh, more than a month off, but that was uh, that was just well. If you know us, you know that it's bound to happen sometimes. Uh, we took our little hiatus after Thanksgiving, and it lasted a little bit longer than we would have liked, but we're back, and we're back yeah. with an episode that I think really encapsulates our brand, because just like whenever we came back from our previous hiatus, we're uh, going into the A24 vault to look at something uh, literary-related. Yeah, so I, like right... I feel like A24 just creates movies specifically for this for this podcast. Oh yeah, uh, there's like, oh uh, uh, the Cohen brothers. Oh, no, sorry, Joel Cohen doing Macbeth, and it's Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. Oh, Meredith and Jake will obviously love this. We have oh, yeah. to, to their specific aesthetics. Oh yeah, last year, whenever the first teasers for this dropped, I immediately oh. was like, "Well, I know what I'm going to be doing on that exact day." So. Um, this is probably going to be the only episode of this podcast that will help you pass a high school English course. So uh, I, sh- I should also point out that both Meredith and myself are recovering from varying stages of illness. So apologies for the way that I sound and the way that Meredith may or may not sound throughout I, this episode. I, um, I mean, if I sound, I sound like a little anime boy. <laughs> well, it's just good practice for your voiceover work. Where, uh, whereas, whereas I, uh, my, my voice is slowly coming back. I do have another commentary gig tomorrow, so I'm hoping this doesn't blow out my voice, but I think it'll be worth it because Macbeth is probably my favorite William Shakespeare play. Um, I've taught it for several years in my own high school English class. Uh, oddly enough, we didn't do it this year. It wasn't part of the curriculum. We switched to Hamlet for some reason this year. My favorite. Which is your favorite my and favorite. my second favorite William Shakespeare play featuring a ghostly apparition. Um, but Macbeth is one of those plays that um, I had always heard it referred to as being the peak of William Shakespeare's Quentin Tarantino phase, which I think is somewhat astute. Um, and I, I just, as a play, it kind of resonates with me. Pretty much every performance I've seen of it, I've enjoyed. And I love the lore around the play, of course. Um, the whole idea of the play being cursed, um, which, you know, I, I have friends in the uh, in the theater industry who still uh, refuse to re- refer to the play by name. It's just the Scottish play, whenever they're describing it. Um, 
Macbeth, of course, was first performed in 1606, written during the reign of King James I. And Macbeth is a play. Uh, a lot of the elements in it sometimes feel like it was com- it was a commission project, just catering to King James bullet points that he gave on like a spec script. So it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting because the way that we look at Shakespeare now as uh, as academics, um, we look at it as like, oh, this is part of the canon. This is something to be studied and analyzed and what have you. But you know, Shakespeare was, for all intents and purposes, the popular culture of the time, and so. Uh, to see something like Macbeth to have endured as long as it has, uh, there's a reason for that. And uh, if you enjoy Shakespeare, or even if you don't enjoy Shakespeare, you can see sort of the elements that make it so enduring. And this particular production, I'm going to, uh, I, I hesitate to refer to it as an adaptation. Um, throughout this podcast, you'll hear me refer to it as a staging. Because That's more than anything... Is. It, more than anything, it feels like a staging. The uh, particularly it, the, the set design, the the minimalistic, kind of almost brutalist look to it. Oh yeah, um, and I don't it's know if you had a chance to watch the uh, the behind the scenes making of featurette that's on Apple TV for this, no, um, but it goes into some of the detail on how to how the sets were created. Um, the entire film was shot on a soundstage to give an otherworldly appearance to the, the Scotland that's being occupied in the, in this production. And uh, the use of shadow and light is so amazingly well utilized in this film. Yes. For, uh, My favorite. For... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Cause you're talking about favorites and I love that. Yes. Okay. The seed of Bonquo before he leaves uh, and is murdered. Spoiler alert for a play that was written in Elizabethan England. I, I refuse. I refuse to. Uh, I refuse to go into spoiler warnings for Shakespeare. It's like yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't do a spoiler warning for Romeo and Juliet or Julius Caesar. So I'm not gonna uh, put spoiler alerts in this one. But um, anyway, but when it, when it, it's it, it's you see what like you said, just a stay a a blank black floor. And then a spotlight shines on it and Banquo walks just directly into it and almost monologues directly into the camera. And it doesn't like, it's not meant to be a complete fourth wall breaking, but it's enough to create that sort of otherworldly aesthetic that that Joel Cohen was going for. And I loved it. I was... And I'll talk a little bit to that as we go through, because I, I really did love the way that this particular staging handled the soliloquies in certain scenes. Yes. Well, um, one thing that I appreciated about the, the more minimalist look to it is not only did it create, like you said, the otherworldliness, which is a great word, um, it also, I think, showcased that Shakespeare doesn't have to be this big, grandiose, ornate aesthetic to work. Yeah, I know. Um, and it's funny because uh, as, as a high school English teacher, one of the things that occasionally I get to occasionally I get to dip my toe into drama. I'm not a drama teacher by any means, although my department chair is. Um, so uh, one of the things that I've really enjoyed whenever I get to assess drama as a genre is uh, we, we'll take a look at the text and we'll examine the, the construction of the text itself, but we'll also look at the way that they are adapted and staged. And uh, one of the one of the finest uh, performances that I've seen of uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible was from a few years back. Uh, 
the Globe Theater. Uh, it was um, God. Who was it who was playing uh, John Proctor? Um, there is a doubt. It was. Um, he, he's one of our favorites, and, and I'm blanking on who it is. We but have it was, a lot of favorites. Yeah, we do. Um, like uh, Thorin Oakenshield. Oh, we like that guy. Yeah. Why? Why can't I remember his name? For the because life of me. Sick. Because we're both sick and we should have pushed this episode back. We should have put that. But we, love if, our, we love our um we we love our fans too much to let you down. I'm actually gonna look it up because it's driving me it's driving me nuts. I wanna say um, Richard Dawkins, but that's not even remotely accurate. No, it is it is not Richard Dawkins, it's Richard Armitage. Richard <laughs> Armitage played John Proctor in an adaptation <laughs> of The Crucible. And I remember his name because we're sick. I know. I'm just like I'm. I'm. I'm not as highly medicated as I have been in recent days, but still, there's a little bit of brain fog. But yes, Richard Armitage played John Proctor in the staging of the Crucible, and it was uh, a sort of theater in the round production where the use of lighting and especially spotlighting uh, and a lack of sets really immersed you in the performances. And the contemporary because like there's two stages at the Globe. There's like this the. Did he do it main stage or did he do like the contemporary stage? I think it was a contemporary stage. Gotcha. I haven't. Yeah. Okay. Because I was going to say the, the main stage as it were is more like a a one-to-one replica of what the globe was um, back in the day. And so that wouldn't necessarily be minimalist, but, but there's this idea that Shakespeare always has to be arch and ornate. And that's not the case at all. No, but the one, but I'm going to kind of work my way through this, uh, through the movie, through the play and kind of talk about scene to scene, what I thought really, really worked. And, uh, one of the things that the the movie does very, very well, uh, is it, it sets a mood. Um, and I feel like this is something that every adaptation that I've seen of Shakespeare's tragedy of Macbeth, uh, they each establish a very different mood. So this is a very moody film, but it's a different kind of moody than say the 2016 adaptation that starred Michael Fassbender and, uh, Marion Cotillard as uh, lady Macbeth. The mood in that was very different from the mood in this, which is very different from the, uh, 70s version directed by Polanski. They all have a very different mood, but, uh, act one, scene one, uh, plays out under a title card which I thought was an interesting choice. Um, it was uh, the, you know, the performance of the witches basically saying that they're going to meet with Macbeth. And I think that it did a very good job of creating this ominous tone before the film had even gone on to establish uh, a mise-en-scene. So before we had gotten to the point where we could see the staging and that brutalist architecture that you're talking about and the black and white and all of that, um, just the way that uh, Catherine Hunter's portrayal of the Weird Sisters and that voice and that differentiation between the three, even though she's playing, uh, she's playing all three, that ability to separate the sisters out, uh, performance by performance, it was such a good way to establish mood before we had even seen shot one. Oh yeah, and um, especially like at, towards the end of that scene where she covers herself in the black cloak, and it's. It's very, very, very bit to evoke uh, death from the seventh seal. Oh yeah, the the Bergman comparisons that I've seen uh, on every review for this film, it's uh, it's very much an obvious influence. Yeah, I was gonna say it's deliberate. 
which and I haven't seen Seventh Seal in many, many years, but uh, I, it's definitely it's enough of a striking resemblance that you can't help but notice it. Um, oh yeah, and like I said, it's there's no way it wasn't particularly the staging where the the witches the the first one stands in the pod and then you see the reflection of the other two. Yeah, and I'll I'll, I'll get to that would I'll not. That would not have looked out of place in a Bergman movie, which I love no. Bergman. So like all of these things that I'm saying are with reverence for Cohen's work, not derision. And we've talked about that in previous episodes about how uh, when an artist like clearly homages and is very open about that homage, it's uh, it, it adds a richness of flavor to what they're doing. It's only whenever they play coy about it, like what I've never even like if if Joel Cohen came out and said what I've never seen Seventh Seal, then it'd be a we'd we'd call like BS. But yeah, it's but very like, obvious that even, uh, that was haven't seen Seventh Seal are at least aware of like the aesthetics just through pop culture osmosis at least here in the states and they are familiar with the concept of playing just with death even if you yeah. don't know where the source comes from yeah i mean i and it's like my my first exposure to seventh seal was actually the references that they made to death on uh animaniacs uh, with well, uh, and also i think for a lot of people too uh bill and bill and ted's bill and Ted. journeys which yeah, the, for, almost the entirety of a bogus journey was a riff on seventh seal yeah, which is, I, I would actually love to cover the Bill and Ted trilogy for this show one time. I, I feel like I we need to, love, we need to sit down I and love do that. I love all three of those movies. I love all three of them for different reasons, which is, uh, like, with with a lot of trilogies, uh, they're, the different installments, you find something different to love about each one. And I, I feel like we could do a good episode on those. I um, yeah. Especially because, like, it had a long delayed sequel and it, they actually made it work. Yeah, it, it, it totally worked. And we'll probably discuss that in that episode. So we we transition from the title card to what in the play is scene two, um, where uh, a sergeant in the Scottish army reports uh, Macbeth's conquest of Scotland's enemies. Um, now, in the terms of the play, it's a significant scene because we don't actually meet Macbeth in the flesh until the third scene of act one. So by having the sergeant deliver his speech about what Macbeth has done, it establishes him and the mythos of this character before we're ever able to like set eyes upon him and gauge him for ourselves as the, as the audience member. So it's one of those things where the way they play out this scene is incredibly important in just about any staging or adaptation that they do. Um, so we see uh, the the sergeant gives the report and he says that uh, when faced with unsurmountable odds, you know, faced with, uh, you know, redoubled ranks of enemy forces, uh, Macbeth is stricken with about as much fear as uh, sparrows would be the eagles or the hare the lion. So one thing that I thought was really interesting there is it shows his bravery, but there's one line from the play that's omitted from this production where the sergeant states that uh, he had no clue as to the reasoning behind the violence and the temerity that Macbeth showed in his fight. Uh, he compared uh, Macbeth's violence in that moment. He said uh, he didn't know why he did it except, quote, to bathe in reeking wounds or mem uh, mem uh, memorize another Golgotha. So 
we are we are given this establishing mythos of Macbeth as like this man of violence, this this creature of rage and fury. And the fact that that line is omitted in this scene kept coming back to me over and over and over throughout this film. And I'll kind of talk about that as we go on. Um, But one of the things that I also noticed is that this scene felt very, very much in line with a stage production in a lot of ways, specifically the sort of revolving door of characters entering like, I I absolutely loved the way that it didn't feel what we would consider to be modernly uh, cinematic in that way. It was very, very stagey. And I felt like that really helped to establish what sort of tone this film was going to have in the way that it introduced and carried its characters. And and also we're introduced to Brendan Gleeson, who is a very effective King Duncan. Yeah. And, And he's also like one of... I think there were like four or five Harry Potter alums in this book, in this movie. Uh, This is also the, uh, the second time that, um, that Joel Cohen has worked with uh, more than a few of them. So I'm guessing that uh, I, I, the only thing that I wish like, and I, I know it's a stupid wish, but it's, it's my, it's my Cohen brothers thing. If they could have found, found some way to work John Goodman into this thing, I would have been really happy. Well, they did find Steven Root. Yes, which I'll get to. God, I love. God bless Stephen Root. I love that man. He's he's a a gift. He really is. And so uh, we'll we'll come to scene three, which is the one that you were speaking of, where we're fully introduced to Catherine Hunter as uh, all three of the weird sisters, basically, because in the stage production, usually they are three separate entities, three separate physical bodies on stage. Whereas in this production, uh, we have one actress, Catherine Hunter playing all three of the weird sisters. Um, and one of the things that I always point out in my lectures is the concept of, uh, in Anglo-Saxon terminology, the term weird, uh, to mean fate, the concept of fate, uh, weird spelled W Y R D. Um, and this, I, I believe you, before we came on, before we started recording, you talked about uh, the idea of the Weird Sisters being presented almost in, in the idea of the Greek chorus. Yes, <laughs> because they are. And that and that's that also... Not, and that would not be out of place um, with the Coen brothers, considering they do love them some Greek. Yeah. And it's one of the things, too, where I, I, I appreciated that also because... Uh, it's like whenever I'm trying to get my high school students to understand the concept of the three sisters, I always point to uh, the fates in the Disney animated version of Hercules. Yes. So there's there's that tie in there. And I think that the way that this scene is staged with the, the singular uh, the singular sister standing in the center of, like you said, that puddle, and then the reflection creating the other two uh, was such a distinct way to present those characters uh in a way that i hadn't seen done before um now i liked in the uh in the 2016 version which i'm not sure if you've if you're familiar with uh the last one no i I didn't see it i'm very so here's the thing i like shakespeare but i'm really picky about watching it i i want to see something like interesting and different in how it's presented i'm not the biggest fan of like the stereotypical everything is arch, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I want to see, like, I really, I still really love um, 
Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, even though Branagh's interpretations of Shakespeare are much more lush, obviously, than what we've got right. here. But and a I'm lot still... of it had to do with um, a lot of the fight choreography, the staging. One of my very favorite scenes uh, is when Fortinbras like storms into the castle, sits down like a badass, and they they put the crown on his head while he's monologuing. I love that. But um, I, I guess I want to. I want a reason to watch, especially because Shakespeare is so long and involved. Right. I want to make sure that what I'm watching is actually like an interesting interpretation of the material and not giving me something that's savvy. Yeah, and the one the one thing that I did like about the 2016 version of Macbeth was the way that uh, Michael Fassbender described his portrayal of uh, the titular character was that uh, Macbeth was uh, struggling with PTSD, and you kind of see that in his performance. Oh, okay. uh, also, M- Marion Cotillard was very very good as Lady Macbeth in that one. Um, but the way that the sisters were presented in that was almost uh, in a uh, like that Dickensian uh, ghost of Christmas past, present, future kind of thing. Where uh, one of them was very young. One of them was ancient. Uh, oh, like so, the maiden mother crowed. Yes. That you get with the witches. So pretty typical. Yes. Yeah. And it, and it, it very much felt uh, it very much felt in line with the tone that that film was trying to set. Same thing here with uh, Catherine Hunter. Um, one of the things that I did find interesting is that they kept uh, her uh, her speaking of the hex that she placed on the, uh, the ship captain. Um, but they omitted the reasoning behind why the sister decided to hex that particular sailor, which in the original text was the... Uh, the wife of the sailor refused to share her chestnuts. And so the witch was so petty that she placed a hex on this sailor that he would like not be able to sleep. He would basically be cursed with constant insomnia. Uh, And I thought that that did a good job of establishing to the audience that the witch was not to be trusted, which I guess in, because we're a modern audience, we're supposed to know uh, through like body language and the depiction and the voice that this witch is not to be trusted. Uh Whereas, uh, I mean, King James had his whole anti-witchcraft crusade. So I think he had to make the text. Let's let's talk about how, yeah, we could go, I could go off about how thou shalt not suffer a witch to live is completely misinterpreted because the original was like, Hey, you know what? You shouldn't use witchcraft for bad reasons, but it's okay. If you want to be a witch, just don't be a jerk about it. And he's like, no, all which is bad. <laughs> yeah, it's and that's that's lar- that's largely due to the crusade of G- uh, King James the First. Who, yeah, like, we can it talk was a like, lot here about how King James completely destroyed what the Bible was supposed to say. But that's yeah, that's like, a podcast that, episode for a different day. Yeah, because I mean, we could we could talk about the formation of the King James Bible. We could talk about. Uh, I mean, th- this was largely well, we talking about how God is genderless in the original Hebrew in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's there's so much that has just been warped and twisted by translation and then translation of translation. Yeah, I mean, I was I was literally taught in middle in middle school Catholic school um, that the reason why only priests can be men is because uh, men are in the shape of God. 
and I, I was actually just discussing this with my with my wife not that uh, not that long ago about the yeah. idea that um, priests were allowed to marry until like the year eight hundred. Um, and then the only reason that priests were forbidden from marrying was uh, due to, as with all things, uh, something to do with land ownership. So and some uh, of it also, and, but but something that they don't talk about either is the fact that uh, 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 <clears throat> sorry, uh, monks could have a ceremony that was similar to uh, a wedding to bond two monks together. Yeah, there's there's a, such there's such an interesting like through line of like religious history that I would love to go into if yeah. I could, but I, I feel like we <laughs> would need. Such a, there's such a queer history, particularly in the monasteries, and and it's not in a bound chicka ow ow kind of way so much as a those were safe havens way. Yeah, I, um, I, and I'd love if we could get some experts to panel on a show like that. That would oh, be. Oh, I'm fun sure we could find some. Cause... If we could get if we could get a panel of experts and then uh like look into you know a film that depicts like taboo within the uh within the religious community i think that would be a good episode we have a lot um, of movies anyway yeah. tangent hey it's our first tangent back okay, our first tangent of 2022 everybody Yay. um getting, getting back on track because i i can i can i can get us i can get us back on track um Sorry, I'm, I'm sick i'm not gonna be on track at all <laughs> No, no, Meredith, Meredith's gonna just gonna wing it. But I'll, I've been, I'll, I've been, I see you're coming off of getting sick, and I'm just now starting to get sick. Yeah, it's 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 perpendicular lines is what this is. Um, so I'll going back to scene three. Uh, this is also the introduction of Macbeth and Banquo. Um, and one of the things that I liked about this is uh, here we see Denzel's Macbeth and as a result of the age of Denzel Washington as a performer, um, we can see why that sergeant's line that was cut earlier was cut. Um, this is a more reserved performance of Macbeth and establishing him as a man of like raging fury uh, is more easily personified whenever you have a younger Macbeth, someone like your Michael Fassbender in the 2016 version. Uh, but it wouldn't fit the performance of someone like Denzel. Um, and I feel like I'm going to talk about his performance a lot because I really, really liked the way that he portrayed Macbeth. Oh, um, same. And also, I something just to... I really liked that nobody really attempted to be Scottish, unless they were already... Unless they were actually Scottish. Unless they were actually Scottish. Um, I, I like that. I mean, I, I don't doubt at all that Denzel Washington or Francis McDormand would be unable to do it. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that they could. They are the best of the best for a reason, and they can afford the best of the best dialect coaches and everything. But I still liked how lived in it felt letting everyone use their natural accents for it. Yeah, because and honestly, a lot of it helped contribute to the cadence of delivering Shakespeare's dialogue, because delivering Shakespeare is not easy. Um, it's why... I. I Going back to another Denzel Shakespeare adaptation, look at the early 90s performance of uh, Much Ado About Nothing and the much maligned Keanu Reeves performance. It's not something that just anybody can do. And if you have to put an affectation on top of it, it becomes muddled. Um, but I, I really did like Denzel's performance. And I, don't, I still think that they could have done it without muddling, but I, I think that it shows that it isn't necessary. 
yeah, that's 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 a very good point. Um, and one of the things that I that I did like about this play is, or this staging of the play rather, is that they were willing to make little changes in terms of making the story flow. Um, because as I said, like academia loves to put Shakespeare on a pedestal, but uh, there are instances where it's it's okay to take liberties. Um, for example, um, Shakespeare himself took liberties for God's sakes. Look at yeah, all the anachronisms in Julius Caesar, which by the way, Joel Cohen should also make him. Oh, I would watch that. Um, I would watch that immediately. But like, for example, in this very scene, uh, in most stage versions, once the, the witches disappear, um, that is when they're happened upon by Ross and Lennox who tell, uh, who tell Macbeth that he is uh, ascending to the title of Thane of Cawdor, like right then and there. There's, there's no, uh, there's no, transition there's nothing here we get sort of a transitory uh scene where uh macbeth and banquo are in a tent at night uh presumably some time has passed and i like this because it implies that both macbeth and banquo have had the opportunity to ruminate on what the witches have told them which is that macbeth will be king and banquo's lineage will beget kings and they've had time to like let that percolate in their mind which drives the performance. And this is a very performance-based uh, adaptation, staging, whatever you want to call it. Well, because... yeah. And I think that's why the Bittablest said, and, and, uh, but what's that? The brutalist. set design. The Brutalist set design made it work is because if it's too, if you have too ornate a background, it's going it to be- It distracts. It distracts. I, I liked the- Now, I did see people complaining that it was too minimalistic, and I think they're kind of missing the point. Or yeah. they don't or they don't miss the point, but they they probably need to understand that Shakespeare doesn't have to be fancy pants to work. For God's well, sake, think, that, think about well, traveling that, performers. You know? Well, I, I mean, if you look at it in this way- um, it was the fact that it was shot in black and white should tell you everything that you need to know. Um, because if they had, you look at certain, certain films that are shot in black and white and it gives it a sort of, uh, a sort of sheen. Like there's just a sort of, uh, it's a patina. Yeah. Whereas here, that use of black and white, it it's to drive the minimalism and it works so incredibly well. well. And it definitely, it definitely, drives home the i am very inspired by bergman <laughs> yeah it definitely wears its influences on its sleeve um and there, there are some other changes that i'm going to get into as we go forward there were just little flourishes that i liked as well so when uh ross and lennox tell uh macbeth that he is now the thane of Condor, one of the little things that i really liked was that at that moment ross offers macbeth the sword to perform the execution himself Mm -hmm. and oh, yeah, so the, the fact that uh denzel's macbeth turns him down shows you something about his character because like i said they cut that line about him being bloodthirsty and i love how that gives you a richness to the character that sort of makes you question why uh he lets his ambition get the better of him as the play well, and and the movie makes, goes on it makes more sense too given his age as well like you said also, exactly. this is still on topic. I loved the costuming that they had for Ross. Oh, with the uh, with the sort of like the wizard sleeves and the yes, it yes. was very it had a very elegant 
elegant look to it. Uh, he he flowed. Yeah. On screen. He he had very much almost like a, a bird-like gliding quality to him because of that the way that his his outfit was cut. Uh, especially like that scene later where he's watching uh, Macduff and Malcolm speaking after the king's murder, and they're like, "Hey, we should probably get the fuck out of here." Uh, yeah, it made him look like like a, a an osprey or a hawk or an eagle watching its prey. I loved that, and it, it fit in. And the fact that so and I'll get into bird, it a little bit later on. But, and I'll get into it a little bit later on. But the, the way that was one of the major. I don't want to say changes, but additions to the tapestry of this film is the way that they did portray Ross. Um, he's he. It would not be incorrect to look at him almost like a vulture, in that he is very much picking his spot depending on what scene he is in. And he's always um, circling. Yeah, he's always circling, just always above watching. And, that, and yeah, and again, I think that his his costuming in that particular case, where it's that sort of gliding bird like aesthetic, is was very deliberate, and I loved it. And I wish that I knew, or or was more of a th- an authority on costuming. I, I'm not, um, unfortunately. Um, but from what I looked at the production notes for this, uh, the costumes were all produced except for very, very few instances in black and white to accentuate the way that it was filmed. And so the, the costuming department deserves major kudos for the way that the costumes were able to pop on screen, despite being a black and white, uh, a black and white staging. Special, special shout out to Lady Macbeth's nightgown. Yes, and we're gonna uh, we're actually gonna go into scene four and five, which is the introduction to Lady Macbeth. Um, now, usually, whenever I look at most stagings of this play, they use this as an opportunity to introduce uh, her ambitious nature explicitly and very early on in the proceedings. Whereas Frances McDormand uh, plays this fairly understated, and it's a benefit of it being a film adaptation. Uh, not having to be overly exaggerated and trying to play to the back of the house. Right. Um, you can, you can, sk- and that's why this works so well as a film. Yeah. And another thing that I liked is that, uh, so the, in the original text of the play, the Lady Macbeth scene where she reads the letter and then whenever she welcomes the returning Macbeth, that is, uh, those scenes are clumped together. The way that they, uh, staged it in this particular version of the film they broke it up by having Macbeth's meeting with Duncan where he learns that Duncan is uh naming his own son as the Prince of Cumberland and therefore putting him in line of succession they use that to break up Lady Macbeth reading the letter and Macbeth returning home um so one of the things that I really liked about both of these scenes uh, is that they both addressed one of my main concerns going in with pretty much any Shakespeare adaptation on film, and that's the way that they handle the soliloquies. Um, because soliloquies on film sometimes fall into the danger of being exposition dumpy, but here it served really as another glimpse into the way that Washington played Macbeth, um, his delivery, whenever he storms out of the tent following the naming of Malcolm as the heir, his delivery shows that sort of like righteous anger and hints at the danger that we otherwise only would have known of because of like 
the the cut lines from the sergeant's report. Um, so I really did like the way that these two scenes handled the soliloquies. I also love that they mashed them the way that they did because we got that amazing transitional shot of uh, Lady Macbeth burning the letter and it floating into the night sky, which was like, I, I love the, the whole idea of, um, you know, every shot of painting. And that was just absolutely beautiful. Um, and so when we get to that scene where uh, Macbeth arrives home and meets with his wife for the first time, uh, her interaction serves as like a real balance to the Macbeth that we've come to know through the early parts of the film. Um, and we see, we've seen their separate soliloquies where they've both expressed their desires to fulfill what the witch has promised. It's just, we have seen them in separate ways and now them coming together, there's implication there that makes what normally would be text subtext. And I thought that that really worked for this adaptation. Yeah. Some, <coughs> something that I... <coughs> Something that I really liked about her performance as Lady Macbeth is how layered it was. In that, yes, she still had that calculating, but there were moments, particularly in the way that that she carried her face, where you would see flashes of regret before she ever even regrets it. Oh yeah, now, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that. Is like she was calculating, yes, but she wasn't a psychopath. And there are so many adaptations and stagings of Macbeth where they make Lady Macbeth into like a real mustache twirling villain. And right. I don't think that that really works. Well, um, and we'll... Older, with the choice to cast actors in their 60s in these roles, she would be probably more of a um, more calculating but thoughtful and layered. She is coming from life experience, not from like a place of greed and spite. I'm going to be sitting on this throne as queen the rest of my life. Um, it's and the age makes a difference. And uh, especially I loved, the, in... I loved it. I loved, I loved the choices that she made. There was a vulnerability to her, but she was still, she's still a villain, but she was a villain that, that was a lot more subtle and a lot more thoughtful and a lot more layered than the, than the, the you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I get you. And I actually want to talk about, I'll, uh, I'll go into that a little bit. In uh, scene six and seven, because they kind of run together, uh, scene six is Lady Macbeth greeting King Duncan as he arrives at the castle. And this is where we really get to see the layers of that performance, because she is being so performative to the king. And one of the things that I liked about this adaptation was the way that they had Denzel standing off in the shadow watching everything. Uh, and so when that leads into the next scene, which is where uh, Denzel's Macbeth gives his rationalization for why he doesn't want to go through with the idea of murdering the king. He's rationalizing it. And he's basically saying along the lines of like, he's a good king. He's always been a good friend to me. He's also in my house. So it would be a double betrayal to be the one that bears the knife against him. Uh I really liked the way that that scene was staged. Uh, and this was also a masterclass in how to use shadow. But we also, uh, going back to Lady Macbeth and the fact that she is played by an older actress, um, her line about, uh, and it's the one that always makes my kids giggle, that I, uh, I have given suck, but I would uh, dash the head of the babe upon the rocks were I to have acted as you have. That line uh, is so much more 
evocative whenever you have an older woman that you can see having that sort of life expectancy that life experience and like you can see it wearing in her eyes that that level of performance you don't get out of a younger actress it's something that uh it's it's all in i hate to get like all like dramatic about it but it's really in in the in the soul of the eyes there and Frances mcdormand really sold it in that scene And it's a perfect way to segue into uh, into Act Two, where uh, you talked. Uh, you've talked about how later there's a uh, the scene with Banquo in the spotlight, but th- there's also this scene where we're introduced. Banquo and his son Fleance are basically patrolling in the night, and they are uh, they're happened upon by Macbeth. And I love this scene because. It normally uh, shows the the difference between Macbeth and Banquo. It helps to establish their relationship. I was a little surprised that this scene was sort of uh, almost underplayed a little bit, whereas usually they tend to emphasize the contrast between Banquo's, quote, heavy summons to sleep, but his refusal to do so. Is it underplayed then, or is it just in comparison to the typical way that it's portrayed, though? Just in comparison to what I've seen. Uh, and you and they compare that with, with Macbeth's denial of his thinking about the witches at all. And it just kind of shows you both that Macbeth is already starting to lie to his closest confidant and the fact that uh, Banquo doesn't think as ill of Macbeth as he would at this point being willing to admit that he's had this on his mind. Um, I, in this version, it was very heartbreaking to see the betrayal of Banquo. Yes, it was. I I loved how he was done here. He was your bro. He was your best friend. He was the man that had your back. And, and he, you know what I'm getting at? I'm just going to keep saying that every time I sneak into a coughing fit. Oh Lord. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Banquo is very well portrayed in this, uh, in this staging. And there, there's a lot that's well portrayed. Like the, the, in this scene, we immediately go from their interaction to the famous, is this a dagger I see before me? Uh, soliloquy, which was in my mind, perfectly staged so Um, dynamic having him walking while he says it instead of he's walking as he's delivering this speech uh the just the the rhythmic steps as he approaches the door and the idea of presenting the dagger that's that he's seeing as actually the door to duncan's bedroom was just it was absolute perfection to me um now what came next was the actual murder scene which was brutal it was like I watched this with my wife, uh, who has never uh, has never read Macbeth or seen Macbeth before, and she was actually a little bit shocked by how brutally staged the murder was. And some adaptations choose not to depict the murder at all, um, but I loved the use of the blood splatter mirroring the knocking that we see in the scene with the porter, uh, and immediately after that, going to. Uh, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth's uh, interaction after the murder. Well, and what I the the murder scene too was was <laughs> was interesting because when when you say murder scene, people always think that it's something very loud, and and over the top, and and this was like a real murder. 
sub, you want the person to be quiet. You yeah, it was a discreet quiet. murder in the night. It was, it, it, yeah, and it was that's what made it so brutal was the fact that they showed it in a way that it probably would have been done instead of like gonna stab you. Ah, yeah, there oh, was no, no, like there was there was a struggle, but there was no struggle. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, he, he gave in very quickly because he's an old man. You know? Yeah, and it's. A, I, I, it feels ghoulish to say it was a great murder scene, but I, it was. But a, it was, and it really plays into the fact that the 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 immediate follow up is Macbeth, uh, basically, uh, breaking down, saying he he basically he can't live with himself in the in the immediate aftermath of the murder. Uh, he almost comes across as pitiful in that in that scene. Like you could almost like. Lady Macbeth is the, uh, you know, takes control of that scene. She goes to plant the evidence of the daggers on the uh, the guards of the king. Uh, the, that, that one line where she chastises him uh, of, like, a little water will cleanse us of the deed. Uh, she is oh, firm and committed. A little water will cleanse us of the deed. And then the way that, that they portray the uh, out, out damn spot monologue. Such yes. a great callback to that line. It, sorry. I... Yeah. And and the fact that they transition from this this wonderful scene of Denzel showing exactly how much rage his Macbeth, Macbeth has to uh, the Porter scene with Stephen Root, uh, because uh, every Shakespeare play, regardless of how tragic it is, has to have some sort of comic relief. Well, I also and feel like every every play has to have Stephen Root. Every play should have Stephen. Root. I, love I love Stephen, Stephen Root. Root. Stephen Root is outside of the Coen Brothers and King of the Hill. Stephen Root is tragically underutilized. The man is a gift. And I I don't understand why he is not as universally beloved as he should be. I don't know, maybe he's hard to work with or something. He's he's great and like there was one he has a a great guest bit in one of the episodes of Justified where he plays uh like this uh concealed carry judge. And he's just absolutely, he's absolutely great. You show, he shows up at anything and he makes it better. That's just what he does. Yeah. Um, the man's a, the man's a, a damn legend. I mean, he gave us this red stapler and Bill yeah. Oaktree put him in every movie alongside Richard Armitage, whose names we now remember. Yeah. And, and we go immediately from that to the aftermath of the murder where, uh, the, you know, the King's death is discovered and Macbeth, uh, as he states in his rage uh, kills the, the two guards that he wants to blame for the murder. And everything about this scene is conveyed in the way in the, in the close-ups on the faces of everyone involved and the distrust in everybody in that scene is so palpable in the way that it's staged. Uh, we talked about uh, Ross hovering like a vulture and uh, the Malcolm and Donald Bain immediately understanding that they're in danger it's it's amazingly well staged uh it's 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 a testament to how uh how well joel cohen understands the assignment here um what's funny is that francis Norman wanted this to be a stage production but joel cohen said why don't we make a movie instead i i think that was probably the better call actually Yes, because I definitely wouldn't have got a chance to go to New York to see this uh, on stage, but now I get to watch it in the comfort of my own home on, home on Apple TV. Um, yeah, and, and, <coughs> and you know, one of the critics 
And the movie I saw, like, blasted it for making Shakespeare too accessible, which is the snottiest thing I've read in a very long time. But that's a good thing. You should make Shakespeare. Shakespeare was accessible in his time. So there's literally no reason why he shouldn't be accessible in our time. Right. So, yeah, the next scene, uh, we have... Uh, Catherine Hunter again, but this time playing the old man interacting with Ross, which I thought was an interesting uh, choice. And well, we also I mean, I figure if you have her, use her. She's one of the most versatile actresses that ever was. Yeah, and it, it, it really plays well. We also get uh, some extended interactions with Macduff for the first time, and I thought it was a very smart idea on the part of uh, casting to have Macduff mirror Macbeth in being a black actor. I thought that was uh, the right move. Um, And we haven't talked a lot about the fact there's like, ooh, there's a black Macbeth because it doesn't matter. Uh, I am a firm believer that whenever you're doing Shakespeare, colorblind casting works except if race is part of the text. Like something like Othello wouldn't work if you do race swapping. But you could do an entirely black rendition of Macbeth and it would work. it 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 would work only so much as you can cast Iago as a light-skinned man. Right. And, but you could never... <coughs> you, you you can only really cast a black man as Othello because otherwise it doesn't work. Right. And I mean, and, when I say a black man, I also mean like you could be Afro-Latina, th- Afro-Latino, things like that too. It's not just like... Or you mixed. It, it, it doesn't have yeah. to... And there were there were some plays that that Shakespeare wrote that that dealt with uh, with ethnicity and race being a part of the text, where doing a colorblind casting would somewhat disrupt the the overall theme. Like uh, you could, it would be weird to do it with Merchant of Venice, but uh, then again, like you you could probably also make a strong point for why it would work. So well, I mean, I saw Midsummer Night's Dream at the Globe, and half the cast was black. It, and um, uh, one of the the male characters was a well. Several of the male characters were played by women. Um, yeah. And it was so it was it was both colorblind and uh, gender blind, and it, it was an amazing. It was it was extremely memorable. Yeah, I, I actually am not the biggest fan of Midsummer Night's Dream, but I was spellbound from beginning to end. But that's one of the be- <laughs> That's one of the beautiful things about theater is that you can so. <laughs> You know, yeah, so, it, but yeah, like in this particular case, a for one thing, it also wouldn't have been super out of the uh, out of the norm either. Because, oh no, did you know that there were black residents of the of the <coughs> British Isles at that time? Like, there's this very whitewashed view of what you know the the British Isles looked like, and yeah, you, you could have had a black Macbeth because it's not like every Scottish person is white. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of those things where uh, a lot of people will make a lot of, uh, of teeth gnashing reasons against it. And none of them are valid in my, in my opinion. No, I mean, and they're like, Oh, it's not historically accurate. I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, did you talk to the Romans. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, that you, brings us, you can't like, have anything that's like a lily white Rome or a lily white Greece, you know, yeah. or there were, um, <coughs> you know, uh, I was reading the other day about Jewish enclaves in China, you know, you, it would be historically accurate to have Jewish people in China. 
Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, there's a lot of different there's a lot of different ways you can go with it. It's just a, a matter well, our, of uh, views, how much do you how much do you need those conservative dollars in your box office totals? Well, our views of what those countries look like have a lot to do with the fact that in a lot of ways their pop culture does not accurately reflect their demographics. So yeah, True. you're probably going to think that the only the only black actor that exists in all of England is Idris Elba. If you know, hey, there's also Mickey from Doctor Who. Who is apparently like a harasser and a perv and all that. So yeah, the point being, like, because they don't have to do a lot of diverse casting in the UK. They they do. They're starting to get better, and so are we. But like, I can understand how people would mistake. Oh, you know, England, it's all white. But if you go to England, no, it's not. No, it's I a mean, very it's, was, it's very diverse. When I was there last, they were having the Caribbean festival. I the, yeah, I stayed in the neighborhood where they were having it. Um, you know, and very large, um, like Indian and Swana populations there too. Like, you, 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 when you go to London, a lily white London at any point in history is a lie. Yeah, so and whatever, I've never been to London. I'd love to go at some point. I just need to renew my passport and uh, they find have a, penguins at their zoo. They have a very large Humboldt penguin uh, Aww, exhibit. It penguin. is it is the greatest. It's where my Facebook picture came from. Uh, yeah, I, I need to I need to make my way to England at some point. They have a and, huge Humboldt penguin colony in the London Zoo, and also Atlas moths. Definitely have to check that yeah, out when I get should, there. And you should definitely see um, a play at the Globe while you're there. Like, oh, I definitely would. It, it, doesn't really, win, like... it doesn't really matter which one because it's going to be good regardless. Yeah, true. And make sure and, to order food for intermission because they're very long. <laughs> well, point being, point being with Shakespeare, it doesn't matter. There's actually, I'm going to give a shout out to her because um, I would like to learn from her. Um, but Carlisle DePriest is a an actress up in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area who apparently teaches a one of the greatest Shakespeare classes that you can take online. Uh, and she's mixed. And oh. I hear nothing but excellent things about her um, her class. I'm looking forward to taking it. I've met her. She's an incredible person. Um, and, like, I love that. Her whole goal is to make Shakespeare more accessible to everyone. And uh, so shout out to her for that as yeah, which, well. I mean, I feel like Shakespeare should be accessible. It's why, I, and I feel like it should be, I'm happy that it's still part of the high school curriculum and it, hopefully it'll stay that way for a while because yeah, I enjoy like, teaching it. We, like you said, I, we spend too much time, I think, elevating Shakespeare to something highbrow when he was the pop cult, he was the, he was the Avengers movie of his time. Yeah. And I, I love teaching it in that way. And that like, this is just a really cool story. And aren't these characters, these characters neat. And look what he did here. Like, uh, we, like now we're at that point in the film where we can go to, uh, what would be act three and in scene one, this is the one that you were talking about where uh, Banquo's soliloquy, uh, it starts off with him under a spotlight with uh, nothing but black light and staging around him. Um, and his soliloquy is normally a bit longer uh, on the page, but it's truncated a little bit here. Um, but we still get a very real sense that this is where his distrust of Macbeth is starting to come to the forefront. Um, there's also a moment in this scene where Denzel flubs a line where uh he's wishing banquo well and he's talking about you know you know go get saddle your horses and he says i commend them to your backs not the other way around and i am i don't know convinced. was that a, I, I don't know if that was really a flub or if it was just a deliberate remixing 
I think it was a flub, but I if it was intentional, it's brilliant because it shows that crack in Macbeth that is then solidified when we get to the next portion of the scene, which is his discussion where he's playing the murderers against Banquo, saying it's like, look, we we talked, and now you, you've come to agree with me that uh, all the troubles in your life were uh, were because of Banquo, so you should definitely go kill that guy. Um, I, I really... I really like that scene and it plays so well in modern society with uh, the idea of politicians and misinformation campaigns of smearing your enemies. Uh, It just shows how Shakespeare is timeless and classic and always relevant. Um, Yeah. And I also loved, so we follow that up with the conversation between Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. And this is the first what I thought the real inkling of Lady Macbeth's hesitation at the actions of both herself and her husband. Uh, Cause up to this point, and even through this, we see her as someone who's rationalized everything and the actions they've taken and her conscience can like bear the weight of what they've done. But we start to see, uh, we start to see the support beams in that bridge start to crack a little bit. Um, it's, it's definitely, like I said earlier, a film adaptation of Shakespeare where they don't have to play to the back and we get to see like the expression on someone like Francis McNorman's face. Um, it really helps sell that scene. Yeah. <laughs> and then going into uh, what would be scene three of uh, act three. Well, and this, love... this, was my favorite por- <laughs> this is my favorite portrayal of Lady Macbeth. Just yeah, because like like you said, they usually tend to play her as mustache twirling villain. Um, yeah, the fact that they gave her layers and allowed her to be human was the probably the best decision that was made. Yeah, no, and one of the other things. If okay, she, so we get into the next scene. Scene if three. She was if she was just like, <clears throat> now don't get me wrong, I do love me some mustache twirling villains. I mean, I I, I love. I love archetypes and cartoony shit, but, but not necessarily. Not, it doesn't necessarily yeah. fit with this something like this. This is a piece. Uh, now, now playing this as a like a wacky dacky cartoon would actually probably be really fun and hilarious. Well, ha- have you seen? Um, I believe the name of the film is Scotland, PA. No, I've not. Where it's it's Macbeth, but it's set inside a pizza parlor. Oh my god! No, that sounds hilarious. Yeah, it's. It's not a direct one-to-one adaptation, but it's heavily inspired by Macbeth, and it's it's absolutely uh, it's it's absolutely delightful. Yeah, um, Shakespeare can be funny, you know. It, that's he wrote comedies for God's sakes. Yeah. Uh, so we follow up that scene with Lady Macbeth with uh, the actual murder of Banquo, which you said was utterly heartbreaking. Um, but I loved the choice on the part of Joel Cohen to make the third murderer in this scene Ross. Because in the text, it's just portrayed as they send a third murderer. So the addition of Ross and making him the Shades of Grey character was a really, really uh, strong decision. Uh, And especially if this is your first exposure to the narrative, it really makes you question what's going on. Uh, So there's that moment where he corners Banquo's son after giving chase. And I had to question whether... The audience was meant to imply that Ross is hesitating in that moment or whether the cut away is to imply that the supposed murder of a child is like the most heinous thing that's happened and we can't depict it. Maybe it's supposed to be ambiguous. And I think the ambiguity is really what they were going for. Right. Um, also, 
uh, like question because you've you've read I've read Macbeth, obviously. I'm an English right. major for God's sake. But I I have not done the deep dives that you have into it, um, largely because um, <coughs> Hamlet's my favorite. Uh, and that's the one that I tend to drill more into. Um, was was the son always meant to be such a young child? Or was the son like a, like an adult child? See, I really don't know. Um, in, because if it was a choice... It varies from adaptation to adaptation. Gotcha. Because if it... The, the choice to make him a very small child was very good. I feel like he's usually supposed to be more teenager, or at least yeah. in the adaptations I've seen. But in this, he's, he's a small boy. Yeah, in this one, he's uh, sort of like on par with uh, with McDuff's son. Yeah, which, which oh, geez, that scene. Yeah, we'll talk about and, that. But it also made the uh, the scene too, where he gives the prophecy a lot more ear, a lot more eerie because it comes from a child. And like, yes. I am, I am always of the idea that children singing and children like delivering airy voiced prophecies is terrifying. Right. And so after the murder of Banquo, we get the only scene in the movie that I didn't 100% agree with. And it's because the scene where Macbeth is ha haunted by Banquo's ghost is probably one of my favorite scenes in all of Shakespeare. Um, so the fact that it's such a truncated version of the scene that basically amounts to Macbeth being, quote, old man screaming at clouds. Uh, Quite literally, I almost. Yeah, I mean, he's, it's... It's just a bird that Lady Macbeth has to shoo out the window. Um, I didn't quite agree with that. Um, it's a choice, and it's not invalid. It's just not one that I agree with, uh, because I feel like it sort of devalues the snap in Macbeth a little bit, because it was it was a gradual snap in the text, whereas here, the way it's portrayed, eh, not so much. Um, but... I did appreciate the immediate transition into the next scene where uh, the Weird Sisters appeared in the castle rather than Macbeth saying, I'm going to go off and visit the Weird Sisters. Um, I also, uh, I mean, you talked about it, the, the way that it was delivered um, with the uh, with the waterlogged imagery and everything. It was really, really well done. I loved that. Um, I also really liked that they changed the fact that the post-prophecy conversation that Macbeth has, which is normally held with Linux, is uh, changed to insert Lady Macbeth. So whenever, uh, whenever Macbeth says that he's going to attack Macduff and kill his kids and all of that, the fact that he's delivering this line to Lady Macbeth and we are able to see that that is the moment where her conscience breaks yes. is such <laughs> a wonderful move and that's because this lady Macbeth has a conscience it's compromised yes. for sure and she's done terrible things but she's she's reflective on those terrible things yes but in the in the text there's nothing that there's no moment that precipitates her downward spiral into a guilty conscience here it's made like really bold and I feel like that was necessary because yeah. otherwise it does feel a little bit out of left field. Like I'm not such a, such a scholar that I'm not going to call Shakespeare out on the fact that there are some gaps well, in his storytelling. That, well, that also could have come from how it was staged as yes. well. Cause we don't necessarily know all of the staging notes that could have very well been filled in the blanks when they went to perform. Like I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a Shakespeare historian. I, 
uh, was a lit crit focus. So I'm not going to have the same perspective English major wise. I, I kind of like have a have a very 101 understanding of Shakespeare. Um, hang on. Yeah, I, I, I studied I studied Shakespeare and uh, Victorian literature in college, but uh, I really only appreciated Shakespeare when I had to start teaching it because uh, I have to do like I have to deconstruct and do uh you know deep dives in order to present the lessons in a way that's accessible uh so it's one of those things where i i look at what shakespeare does and i look at what he does with the characters and i look at it from a modern perspective which maybe not everybody uh agrees with but uh it's something it's just the way that i approach it now also looking at the next scene which is uh the murder of of mcduff's family um you know how I feel about the precocious child trope, right? So, so this scene is one that historically I'm just like, yeah, stab that kid. <laughs> it's it's hard for me to uh, to to not to uh, really feel sympathy because it's like, yeah, I I, I want to murder that kid too. Um, but in this this version of the play or this version of the of, of the adaptation, I just love that instead of stabbing the kid, they just yeet him over the rail into the fire. But in this case, he didn't deserve it. Just because he was a precocious kid, he was a precocious kid trying to take care of his mom and protect his, you know, like, wanted to, wanted to make sure that his dad came home safely. Like, I don't know, this kid should have been spared. I know how you feel about precocious kids, but the way yeah, that he was killed... Uh, it was it was brutal. it was brutal. It was, the, it was but what made it more brutal was the fact that uh, Lady Macduff, like her screams, was yeah. really what did it. Uh, and that translates uh, that translates pretty well into uh, the next scene, which is Malcolm, uh, who has you know run away to to exile in England. Uh, Macduff uh, meeting with him, and Ross arrives to give him the uh the news that his family has been murdered one of the things that i liked about the staging of this scene is they omitted the part of the scene where malcolm is essentially testing mcduff and his loyalty uh i whenever i teach this scene always cut it out because the kids never understand the subtext of it uh and so and it also like disrupts the flow of the scene a little bit i liked the way that it flowed here uh and i loved that the focus of the scene was then on uh, Macduff's anguish because it really hammered it home a little bit, uh, a little bit more effectively, in my personal opinion. <coughs> is how is that's that's my contribution right now. Oh God! Uh, so yeah. yeah, and that leads into that leads into Act Five, which a monologue, and I'll I'll uh, I'll interview. Yeah, you just nod in approval. I'm sorry. Yeah, people can totally see me nodding in the. Uh... Yeah, I thought about making this a video podcast, like down the line, but I, I really like my my office is so dark and dank because, like, uh, just the way, just the where it's located in the house, and the fact that there's not a whole lot of light coming from my like ceiling fan. Um, I'm like, I can't film it here. I would just look like a dark shadow. I couldn't, uh, I, couldn't I couldn't do it tonight anyway because my eyes are almost swollen shut. Oh, wonderful. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll cover most of Act 5. Right? So you can just, uh, if you feel up to it, just chime in when you can. Um, 
So scene uh, scene one of Act Five is the out damned spot hand washing scene for Lady Macbeth. Um, this scene, in my opinion, always seems to fall prey to uh, almost excessive melodrama whenever uh, it's in the hand of a of a, of a lesser actress. Which, being Shakespeare, that it's usually fine because a lot of the times it's overwrought, it's stagey, and that's fine. Um, I feel like the exaggeration of Lady Macbeth's anguish here is somewhat at odds with the tone of the rest of the production and what we've seen from Lady Macbeth so far. However, you could make an argument that it shows the complete break from where she was previously. So it's it's a very, it's normally a very powerful scene. Uh, and I feel like it works here, just not, it wasn't quite what I was expecting through in the lead up to it, whatever I was expecting, like, as a scholar, of, as someone who sh studied Shakespeare, I knew the scene was coming, and I kind of had in my mind an expectation. The fact that it wasn't met, that's more on me than it is on the production. Um, so the next scene is where, uh, it's the scene where we finally see that Macbeth has finally lost his shit. Uh, which, uh, he's insulting his servants, he's screaming to the heavens because he fully has embraced this idea of the prophecy of himself being invincible because he's been told uh, that no no man born of a woman shall defeat Macbeth. Like, he feels like he is secure in his position. And this is also, uh, in this particular staging, the only time where the casting of a black man as Macbeth seems to add a layer to the text because he calls his white servant a cream-faced loon, which was in the original text, but now with a black man delivering it, it seems to have a little bit more bite to it. Um, it will and, becomes, a, becomes a, a much more punching up moment. Yes, yes. And uh, this also has one major change, an insertion that I am conflicted about. And that's the implication. It's not, it's ambiguous. It's not actually shown, but the implication that Ross had something to do with the death of Lady Macbeth. Because the... Every read of this play that I have ever done has the implication that Lady Macbeth commits suicide, that her guilt overcomes her. She over is she so overcome with guilt that she cannot go go on living. So to imply that Ross had some sort of uh, role in it, it adds a wrinkle. Now the only thing that I can possibly think is that maybe he was the devil on her shoulder that pushed her over the edge, which. Ooh. Which is, which is interesting, and it's like if you go with that as your head cannon, it still works, uh, especially given what we've seen of Ross so far. But it is, like I said, an interesting wrinkle. Um, and then we come to, uh, like it's interspersed with we go from Macbeth to the uh, the approaching army, back to Macbeth to the approaching army. Um, but the Macbeth scenes are the ones that really stand out to me because the stuff in the forest with Malcolm and Seward and all of them, uh, it's it's just to provide context for what's about to come. And I love, uh, so scene five of act five is the uh, probably, I don't know, maybe the second most sil famous soliloquy in the play. Uh, and Denzel's detached response to the death of his wife really emphasizes the hollowness of the tragedy that is uh, Macbeth. And that soliloquy is 
probably one of my personal favorites. It's the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow. A, po a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. And I... Like, go ahead and just print that shit on my tombstone already. Um, I love that soliloquy. And just the way that Denzel portrays it as, like, it's almost this, almost like this nihilistic, it is what it is, and I have it's a giant accepted the idea of <laughs> He's accepted the idea of predetermination and the idea of like fate as a concept it just, and the delivery of it, his delivery of it was masterful. Uh, but what followed was as much as I love Shakespeare and the word play, it was the sword play in scene seven that really, really got me because the staging of the sword fight between young Seward and Macbeth, it's like stagecraft is so about building drama and the way that it's staged here with Macbeth's unwavering confidence and his belief in his own invincibility, the way that he toys with Seward like a cat playing with a mouse was just perfection. And the way that he defeats him by he is he's cut in the face and he flicks his own blood at Seward to distract him oh, and then God, stabs yeah. him in the back. This is where, like, again, we've talked about how Denzel is playing an older Macbeth, uh, someone who has is aged and someone who has seen experience. We are not told what Macbeth is like in battle. We see what he's like in battle in that scene, and it makes it so much more rich for it. Now, you contrast that with the next scene, his sword fight with Macduff. Macduff and Seward are so, they're both filled with rage towards Macbeth, but Macduff serving as the foil to Macbeth, that sword fight and the way that it ends with uh, Macbeth, uh, his downfall being the direct result of him reaching for his fallen crown. It was such perfect yeah. staging of symbolism. <laughs> I, you couldn't ask for a better, a better finale to the play. Yeah. I absolutely love it. I may or may not have like, weakly pumped my fist when I saw that. It was those sort of shots are why filmed adaptation of Shakespeare are so uh so dynamic because you can't really do that on stage. It's a limitation of what you can do on stage. Um the aesthetic you can probably replicate, but there are other things that you can't. The close-up performance that is uh, so closely tied to film acting, kind of hard to recreate on stage. Uh, well, yeah, because you, you uh, <coughs> hello, um, it's hard because you can't see the back of the, you yeah. play to the back of the audience, but, you know, it's two completely different sets of, oh my God, I'm like dying. Yeah, you're, you're a little out of it. It's two completely different sets of skills. Yeah, and, and as someone who has acted both on stage and on film, it, it's so completely different what they what a person will ask of you. And whenever I was uh, in a theater program, my directors constantly gave me notes of like, you need to go bigger, you need to go bigger, you need to go bigger. And whenever I would go back to trying to do film, 
it was I had to scale it back down. Uh, Denzel is one of those actors who, because he has such a dynamic presence both in film and in theater, he knows how to strike the perfect balance. And so I, I don't think you could have asked for a better Macbeth. I think that in terms of what Joel Cohen was trying to do, uh, Denzel Washington absolutely nailed it. And uh, the characterization uh, adding to the thematic elements that are present in this film, it just all was tied up in such a nice, neat little bow. And I absolutely loved it. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that as a, uh, a cough in the affirmative. Yeah, it's good, good stuff. Good stuff. Oh my yeah. god. So <laughs> I'm done. That, that was basically a speed run of uh, what I would normally talk about with each act whenever I'm teaching this in a high school setting. Although uh, usually there's a lot more scaffolding and uh, and like there's usually a word wall involved. Um, but Shakespeare, like, you know, the, the the complaints about it being too accessible because of this. These are things where. I don't want people to think of Shakespeare as too highbrow or above their ability to comprehend. Um, well, and I hate I feel that, like... that's, that that's how he's been taught and portrayed for so long. Yeah, and, it, and admittedly, the, the language can be a little bit challenging. Like I said, I watched this with my wife, who is not uh, an avid Shakespeare reader, and she was able to follow it with very, very little confusion. Uh, she had me stop the film at just once to ask a question. Um, but she was also really surprised at how much that she had absorbed of Macbeth through osmosis because of how much it has entered into popular culture. Like, uh, everything with the witches informs what we associate with witches that, you know, uh, boil, boil, toil and trouble. Um, yeah. Yeah. That that's taken from, uh, taken from this, the something wicked this way comes. Um, and even, uh, even little bits like the, the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, uh, she recognized from, uh, her own, uh, love of Hamilton, which was referenced in that play. Uh, so Shakespeare should be accessible. Uh, you don't, you shouldn't have to look at it as like, as a scholar or an academic, you should just be able to look at it and appreciate it for the storytelling that it is. And I think that this is, uh, a fairly accessible version of the play. Uh, it's striking enough that it should hold your interest. It's just how willing are you to engage with the material and not be distracted while you watch? Because this is not a throw it on while you're doing laundry kind of movie. It is something that you have to engage with. Uh, well, but, so much of it is, is in the visuals. Yes, that too. Uh, it's a. I found it to be a very rewarding film. I I enjoyed myself immensely. Uh, very well paced too. Yeah, it, because most stage versions of Macbeth that I've seen run about two hours forty five minutes, sometimes three hours, depending on how long they go for intermission. And this was a very tight, right under two hours. So, yeah. very very well crafted and staged and paced. I thought it would it kind of zipped by. Uh. So the changes and the omissions that they made, it was all for the better. So if you have any interest in uh, Shakespeare or, uh, but you can't like get out to a theater to see a staging, this is, I feel, a very good way to see a stage-like production of Macbeth in the comfort of your own home. And whether you enjoy it or not, really, like, 
I won't judge people who don't like Shakespeare, but I think that it's no, something that everybody should engage with at least once in their life. I feel like people who say that Shakespeare is like impregnable and hard to understand are not wrong. Because he can't. Yeah, and it, he. Thank you. Bless you. Pe- thank you. Some people don't want to invest the time in understanding it, and that's valid. Uh, we're nerds that yeah. that are English majors, and like people pay us to do deep dives into into reading stuff. So like, but like, it doesn't make you a better person or a worse person. It just makes you have different boundaries in what you will and will not engage with. Like, I'm sure you have some students who absolutely hated Macbeth, even if you explained everything to them. And guess what? Totally cool. And yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Okay to hate. But I also had kids that I had no, I had no expectation that they were going to enjoy it at all, and they loved it. So there's, you may find yourself surprised. Yeah, but if not, that's okay too. Like it's okay to not be, to to be like I, you know what? I watched it and it's not for me, and I don't get it. Yeah, perfectly it's valid. Okay. The thing is, it's okay to not get it. Like my I opinion want, is not the only opinion that matters. Like, like the I, why we want. Um, Shakespeare to be more accessible is because there probably are more people who would like it if they knew that it could be accessible. Um, yeah. like I mentioned Carlisle de Priest earlier. I want to take her class specifically because I've heard that she makes the ability to understand and perform Shakespeare accessible to actors of all skill levels. And I love that. Um, I've never done any Shakespeare training, but I want to do it with somebody who knows how to break it down instead of someone who's like oh you don't you're not getting the accent correct or yeah you're not flourishing enough or some other like arch nonsense the the, shakespeare should be fun not not highbrow you know and 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 i don't think anything should be highbrow but you know what i mean yeah i get you but i I feel like this i feel like it's highbrow middle bow and lowbrow is bullshit yeah i'll just say that personally as someone who who does enjoy shakespeare this is my personal favorite of the stagings of Macbeth that i've seen on film uh each one that i've seen has its pros and cons but this i feel like was most true to the intent of the text and so i enjoyed it on that level uh and some people may disagree with me and i don't care like that's opinions are valid uh i just happen to have a podcast that's being shouted out into the ether so whatever feel free to uh like argue with me on twitter i don't really care um you want to argue with us on twitter like our response to well actually i hate shakespeare will be like cool like it's okay that you hate shakespeare like there's a lot of reasons to hate shakespeare any form of art can be divisive like there are some people who don't like Hootie and the Blowfish. They're wrong, but it's okay. I mean, I still have, I still own my copy of Cracked Review, so like I'm not. Gonna so do I. I. I have my. I have a CD. Like yes, I have my CD collection still. Um, well, I, I have it upstairs right now. The internet goes out. Yeah, like I, I, I still have a physical media collection of all. Like I've got. A, just a metric ton of CDs and vinyl upstairs. And no, I have, some days I'll just, I, I kept my CDs and my DVDs 
because I'm like, but what if the internet goes out? Yeah, like, you can't. I, it's also just in the world of digital rights management. You never know who actually owns what. So having a physical copy is uh, really like if they put a Blu-ray out of this tomorrow, I'd go buy it because I'd like to be able to have access to it. I'd like to be able to uh, bring it in and show it in my classroom sometime if I end up teaching Macbeth again. Because this year I did Hamlet, but who knows? I um, love Hamlet. So, Hamlet's my yeah. favorite. I, I told uh, I told my wife that I'd love for somebody to do a uh, do a do a staging of Hamlet. My uh, my dream casting was I want uh, I want Moody Adam Driver as Hamlet, just because after seeing the last duel and his flourishing cape swishes, I just I need him to be Moody uh, Moody Hamlet on film before he ages out of it. I mean, you could do like old Hamlet and have his his like aunt and uncle be like super ancient uh, his mom and uncle or mom and aunt, be, or you know <coughs> uncle that'd, father that'd be so disgusting but still but i mean it, a valid I mean, interpretation if, if you have him as like a middle-aged man and they're like super elderly it works i mean it would you would have to change up some of the wording it's like yeah true. oh they were his old college bros the rosencrantz and the guildenstern but like you can you can work around it i think it would change some stuff, but I don't think it'd be too bad. Yeah, and it might make for an interesting dynamic. Who knows? But we'll go ahead and wrap things up because we've gone longer than I expected, which uh, is a thing that tends to happen on this show. Yeah. If this is your first time listening, thank you so much. Um, you can follow our podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. You can find me uh, personally if you want to shout at me. Uh, it's at Jacob King HTX, both on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I don't respond to messages on Instagram because I'm not a weirdo. Uh, but if you send me a reply on Twitter, I will engage with that. Uh, you can find Meredith. She is at Meredith Nudo, N-U-D-O, on Twitter. My DMs uh, are closed because I'm a woman on the internet. <coughs> yeah. Because Meredith ain't no dummy. Um, well, no. I have a woman on the internet and, be, and have your DMs open. A lot of journalists need that option. So, like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call anyone that has their their DMs open the dummy, but I don't. Well, any woman on the internet who has their DMs open is braver than any U.S. Marine. What if it's what if there is a woman who is a U.S. Marine and has her DMs open and she's on the internet? In the olden days, that's how we found our rulers. Um, so yeah, before we get out of here, um, I do have a couple of things to plug. Um, a few weeks ago, I did have the, uh, my company, uh, VWR, our first, uh, independent wrestling event of the year. Uh, we had new wave, which was a resounding success. Uh, and you can watch the full show on title match network. That's, uh, a subscription service. It's nine 99 a month and it has, you can get access to all sorts of professional wrestling content on there. It's well worth it. Or if you're just interested in catching a couple of the matches, but not the whole show, uh, you can just look for those, uh, on YouTube, just search for Vixen's wrestling revolution and our show should come up. Uh, we've gotten, several thousand views for each match within the span of 24 hours okay. of each one going up and we've got a lot of good feedback um our next show is february 25th in texas city at booker t's world gem arena that is tainted love which uh we're really looking forward to that we're going to be crowning a new champion that night and uh 
local uh local texas uh texas city hero we'll call her uh aqa uh who just signed a contract with all elite wrestling will be coming back to have a match with us we're super excited to have her her. her. so um please please come out and enjoy the show it's going to be a good one uh and i know meredith has uh a mountain of voiceover work that she herself is doing lately yeah but my throat is absolutely destroying me so just go to my twitter and you can find out about what i'm working on because it's um a lot of stuff and some stuff i can talk about and some stuff i can't talk about but um if you like video games and indie animation and audio dramas that's stuff that i do um and yay um but i and i wish that i could shout out all my amazing people that i've worked with but i'm dying like yeah we'll we'll make sure that uh you get a chance to like fully do your shout outs uh on the next episode whenever yeah. you have fully recovered god i'm yeah, yeah speaking of voiceover stuff I, I need to go i need to go on rest thank you for listening everybody All right. Well, I will go ahead and sign us off then. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back as soon as humanly possible with another episode that hopefully is uh, a little bit more accessible to everybody's interests and not just mine. But this has been fun and I'll see y'all next time.